Hey, running nerds, it's Kyle Merber, and we're going to try something new here. If you're listening to this podcast, and there's a high likelihood that you love track and field. In that case, I encourage you to subscribe to the Lap Count newsletter. It's my newsletter, helping fans stay up to date with all the thrilling action and biggest stories in the world of track and field, delivered right to your inbox every Wednesday morning. It's free. It takes less than a minute to sign up at thelapcount.com, and I think you'll enjoy it. Here's this week's newsletter read by Chris Chavez. Before we get into it, this week's newsletter is presented by Bandit Running. Bandit Running is a performance and lifestyle running apparel brand founded by members of the New York City running community in 2020. What started with socks and accessories has grown into a full-fledged apparel line. Hopefully you saw our Bandit and Sidious Mag partnership around Chicago, but if you missed out, Bandit is going to be at 333 North Michigan Avenue through October 20th. And if you're not in Chicago, check them out online and follow them on Instagram. Listeners of the Sidious Mag podcast and readers of the Lab Count newsletter can get 15% off using code Sidious15. That offer is only available through the end of the month, so take advantage of it. Visit banditrunning.com, code Sidious15. Lap 136. Who is the GOAT now? World record holder Kelvin Kiptoon. Two hours and 35 seconds. Athens would have known about the victory at the Battle of Marathon a bit sooner had it been Kelvin Kiptoon in Fidipides' position. But with Fidipides sporting the Nike prototypes, surely he would have shaved off a few minutes, right? With Kiptoon's 436-paced performance, the 23-year-old relegates Elliot Kipchoge to former world record holder status after five years at the top. What a world we live in where Kipchoge's 201.09 mark from Berlin last year is now just the second fastest marathon ever run. But is anybody really that surprised? Unlike in baseball, where we dare not even whisper about a potential perfect game until it happens, Kipdoom's potential was being shattered from the upper deck well before his first step on Sunday. Kiptoom simply hasn't missed since last December when he first stepped to the 26.2 mile long plate in Valencia and promptly became the fastest debutant ever, running 201.53 for the win. But it was his dominant 201.25 in London this past spring that brought Kiptoom into the same conversation as Kipchoge and confirmed that he was real. Has anyone ever been on a heater like this? Three marathons in 10 months with an average finishing time of 201.17. It is one thing to run fast when everyone else is doing it. It's another thing entirely to dominate an era where those times are being run. The margin of victory in Kiptoom's three performances was 67 seconds, 178 seconds, and 207 seconds over Gabriel Gay, Joffrey Kemmor, and Benson Kipruto, respectively. Kiptoom makes even studs look silly. Dominance and times aside, what made Kiptoom's run so special was the way that he did it with intent and intelligence. He made a decisive move at the first bottle station at 5K that resulted in a breakaway. The only non-pacer to come with him was Daniel Mateko, Kiptoom's rabbit in London who was now making his own debut. Kiptoom was like a conductor, instructing the three-man pack, which also included a pacer, when to speed up and when to slow down, and also encouraging them to follow the blue tangent painted on the ground. They came through the first half in 60:48. The pacer stepped off, and Kiptoom and Mateko ran side by side until a bit past 30k. When Kiptoom moves, it is violent, and his aggressive shift immediately broke Mateko's spirit in a bid for the world record. Mile 22 was 4:18, and then it was over. All right, now what? How do we digest? this world record while our stomachs are still full from all the meaty performances that we consumed in Berlin. Firstly, we cannot call Kiptoom the greatest of all time, the GOAT. 
Not just yet. That's not how this works. He boasts a small and mighty resume now, but in order to lay claim to the title of the best marathoner in the world right now, he needs to beat Kipchoge straight up. And to be considered the best marathoner of all time, he needs to win 10 more world marathon majors and a couple more Olympics. The Kenyan Olympic team should be Kipchoge, Kiptum, and Evans Chibet. It's a shame that all three men chose to do different marathons this fall. Chibet is racing in New York next month. But that'll make the Olympics so much more interesting. And as often is the case, I agree with Michael Johnson's assessment that we need to keep competition at the center of the conversation. Unfortunately, with athletes racing maybe once every four months and with the best not overlapping, that becomes increasingly more difficult. Until this summer... Hypotheticals are all we've got. The juxtaposition between us watching Kipchoge the marathoner grow up in front of our eyes like he's the newest protagonist in the Truman Show versus Kelvin Kiptoon being dropped on Earth by a UFO visiting from outer space makes for an intriguing storyline. Whereas Kipchoge was winning worlds 15 years before even breaking the marathon world record, Kiptoon hitting homers on the international scene seemed instantaneous. How long until we start accusing Kelvin Kiptoon of not being able to run over hills and bridges? Although he was self-coached at the beginning of his career and was rumored to still be in London, it turns out he is not. That would have made for a really cool story, though. It has been shared that he is coached by Jervis Hakizimana, who competed for Rwanda and now lives in France. According to an article, Kiptoon runs an upward of 300 kilometers a week. American math says that that's over 180 miles. Like all good coaches, Hakizimana is worried about his athlete's longevity. Quote, I told him that in five years he'd be done, that he needs to calm down to last in athletics, end quote. But imagine how good those five years will be. We've seen the impact that Jakob Britson's double threshold training methods have had on the track and field world. Could we be on the precipice of a similar shift on the roads? Right now, 120 to 130 miles per week seems like the sweet spot for a lot of American marathoners. But are we leveraging new shoe technology to its upper limits? And it's not just about the mileage. There's obviously intensity to it as well. I'm not saying a 418 late race split means Kelvin Kiptum is being pulled by a bungee for overspeed training, but you don't average 436 a mile for two hours without some turnover. In so many ways, Kiptum still feels like a mystery. Hopefully, Nike will throw a PR campaign behind him so we can learn more about the man. Like, how has he never felt pain during a marathon? And as a follow-up, how does it feel to live my dream? Is there anything Stefan Hassan cannot do? If only the Chicago Marathon was a couple weeks ago. Just six weeks after Safan Hassan competed in three different events at the World Championships in Budapest, she took to the streets and ran 213.44 to become the second fastest woman ever at the distance. Had it not been for Tigas Asefa's earth-shattering run of 211.53 in Berlin, then this would have broken the four-year-old mark of 214.04 set by Bridget Kosgai on the same Windy City streets. In theory... The training required to earn a world silver medal in the 1500 and to earn a second world marathon major shouldn't be too similar. But I suppose we should have listened when Safan Hassan said she was doing post-race workouts because she was training through facing off against Faith Kipiegon. To my more impressionable readers, just because it worked for her doesn't mean it will work for you. Maybe some good advice when it comes to Kelvin Kipton's 180-mile weeks as well now that I think about it. Now that Hassan has proven that she could run five minutes faster than her London debut, it puts her comeback victory there into perspective. Yes, she may have stopped to stretch on occasion, and though she fell off pace, there was never a mile gap. 
It's quite glorious when the whispers of a world record attempt come to fruition. It creates a lot of anticipation, excitement, and celebration. But there's also risk there, like when it doesn't happen. I hate myself for even feeling one ounce of disappointment in that moment when it became evident that Hassan was not going to dip under a safe as Mark. As much as we like to pretend that times are completely made up now and that great racing should be the primary focus, it's still fun as hell to see an increasing low time on that big clock. Maybe the day will come when I'm numb, but that's a problem for future Kyle. While on a different course, Ruth Chepengedich took Chicago out in 65-42, considerably faster than Asefa, whose first half was 66-20. Hassan came through in 65-48. In my preview before the race, I pleaded with Chepengedich to be more conservative. I checked. Unless she's using a burner email account, she's not a subscriber to this newsletter. Putting time in the bank rarely pays off for amateur athletes, and this is one of those things that's not too different for the professionals as well. Unlike in Asafa's world record and for many of the top female times in the marathon throughout the years, Hassan did not have a pacer run her to the line and was alone for the last five-ish miles. Disappointingly, but not surprisingly, there was a huge chunk of time in which the stream did not show the women's race, so it's hard to pinpoint exactly when she embarked on the solo mission. While 2.11.53 seemed like an incredible outlier just two weeks ago, it's only a matter of time before the gaps are filled. At some point, this incredible recalibration of fast times will have to decelerate and there will be a new norm established. Records are not going to be broken annually in perpetuity unless World Athletics loosens its current rulings on shoe limitations. There will eventually be what I assure you will be repeatedly called the Great Stagnation, and the dots on the scatter plot will fill out between what used to be considered fast and what is now. Today, 2.13.44 is still fast as hell. Two down, one to go for Team USA. On the count of three, all male American marathoners repeat after me. Thank you, Connor Mance and Connor Young. But no one should be more thankful than the NBC commentary crew who won't have to fully explain the nuances of Olympic marathon selection. It's not that no American man could run under the standard. It's that none of them had. Realistically, there are maybe six-ish guys right now who on their best day could dip under 20810. And between the hills and bridges of New York and Boston, which prove a siren song for American marathoners every damn year, there have been limited opportunities to get it done. There are three theoretical spots for Americans on the starting line in Paris. This weekend, we only unlocked two, but that's still better than zero. There's a possibility that we get that third spot in one of three ways. One, an American places in the top five in the New York City Marathon. Two, an American runs under 208.10 somewhere else. Or three, an American winds up in the top 64 on the descending order list. It's frustrating that the road to Paris has not been published yet, and we're operating on vibes more than data. However, Matt McDonald's 210.34, in addition to his 210.17 in Boston, seem very promising. The downside of relying on rankings is that the third potential qualifier is going to have a very difficult time answering his Facebook friends who want to know whether he made the Olympic team or not. Furthermore, in order to qualify for the possibility of one of three spots, an athlete has to run under 211.30 during that window, which opened on November 1st, 2022. So if your name is not Connor Mance, Clayton Young, Galen Rupp, Sam Chalenga, Brian Schrader, Matt McDonald, Joel Richo, Andrew Colley, Kelvin Salvano, Lenny Career, Elkana Cabet, Futsum Zenesalasi, Bia Simbasa, Zach Panning, John Izuski, or Tashoma McConan, then you need to do it ASAP or in Orlando. You gotta pray that it's not a scorcher, though even on a hot day, it should hopefully take under 211.30 to qualify. 
For context, Jared Ward ran 2.13 for third all the way back in 2016. Admittedly, there was less of an impetus for time back in the Stone Ages when men ran barefoot, drank flat sodas for sustenance, and were fully convinced compression socks did something. Japan's Grand Championship Marathon. The Japanese Olympic Marathon Trials are this weekend in Tokyo, and if you think the United States has difficult standards, then buckle up for this. The automatic qualifying times in Japan are 2.08 for the men and 2.24 for the women. Athletes can also get in if the average of their two best times is 2.10 and 2.28, or by running fast and placing well at a select handful of domestic races. According to user Prairie Fire Phoenix on Reddit, look, there's not a whole out there on the Japanese trials at the moment, which is nuts because it's such a high-quality event. There have been only 67 men and 29 women qualified. And our dear friend on Reddit's advanced running page extrapolates just how big the fields would be in the United States if a similar standard were applied. Chicago helped fill the field out a bit, and it depends on which U.S. races would be considered worthy of selection. I'd assume CIM and grandmas would make the cut. But there would only be... 10-ish men and 25-ish women if held to similarly tough standards. While I am definitely in support of a smaller trials, this is really small. In Japan, the nature of the race is truly about qualifying for the Olympics and not about qualifying to participate in the qualifier. So while I'm not ready to commit to the system just yet, Japan has 21 men at 208.10 or faster and two more at 208.11 whereas the United States only has two I'm just saying the craziest part about the Japanese system is that only the top two spots at the trials are guaranteed but if someone comes in and runs faster than 205.50 or 221.41 at another race they could snipe in for that third spot and how interesting would that be for the U.S. women Here's what else you need to know from this past week. Emily Sisson was the top American woman in Chicago going 222.09 for seventh place. She cramped at mile 18, but did something I personally would not do and held on because she is tough. Keep an eye out for an upcoming episode of the Sidious Mac podcast with Emily Sisson. Des Linden set a new American Masters record of 227.35, breaking Dina Castor's previous mark by a close 12 seconds. Annie Rodenfels won the Boston 10K for women in 32.07 by 23 seconds over Emily Venters. Pretty, pretty good debut at the distance. Congratulations to former Oregon Duck Milers Matt Santrowitz and Sam Prakel on getting married this weekend, but not to each other. NCAA 1500-meter champion Maya Ramson of Harvard has signed an NIL deal with On. Team USA has named its team for the Pan American Games that will take place from October 22nd to November 4th in Santiago, Chile. I'd be curious to know how late a November competition fits into the training schedule for the sprint and field athletes. In fairness, the bag of gear is really nice. Milk enthusiast and North American marathon record holder Cam Levins ran 61.18 to break the course record at the Royal Victoria Half Marathon. Calvin Kiptoon's main training partner, Kenneth Kipkemboy, ran 204.52 to win the Eindhoven Marathon this weekend. I cannot fathom running a sub-205 marathon only to show up at practice the following week to have your teammate be like, hey, that was cute. At the Izumo Ekiden, Komozawa University repeated as champions and broke their own course record in 207.51. Ten years ago, I traded for the uniform shirt, and it's probably in a box in a closet somewhere in my parents' basement. The Ivy League squad finished 13th, and frankly, if I were a dude who got my jersey in that swap, I'd have my parents incinerate the box that it's in. 
The McCurdy Micromarathon is this weekend in Rockland State Park, just outside of New York City. The forecast looks cool and damp, so we could see plenty of OTQs. And if we wind up with horrible weather, notable tough guy Ben Blankenship is debuting and will probably like that outcome. You can keep tabs on the race by following at McCurdy Trained on Twitter. It is the NCAA Cross Country's biggest weekend with pre-nats in Virginia on Friday and the Nuttycomb Invite in Wisconsin on Saturday. We will be previewing all of the weekend's action with Isaac Wood on the Sidious Mag podcast. Thanks to much to Bandit Running for supporting this week's newsletter. You should buy the running apparel that fits you best and is most comfortable for your runs, and I think Bandit could be that for you. But if you need an excuse to try it out, then let their support of Sidious be the push that you need. Their team was an incredible partner and an absolute pleasure to work with in Chicago. For more, visit thelapcount.com. We'll see you next week.